are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Okay, scripture this morning is John 12, 12 through 19. Let's read this together. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we ask you now to fill us up, fill us up with hearts, as Buster prayed, that are moved to compassion, hearts that are marked by our salvation in Christ as kingdom people. Open up our eyes to see, give us the courage to believe and to live in your truth. And may Christ be glorified in us and through us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They can't really blame the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8 for requesting a king at that moment. Israel was at the time living in the period of the judges. These men and women of God who he appointed to uh, deliver Israel from various enemies throughout their history. They're not kings and queens like the ones Israel's demanding here, but deliverers. For Israel was, seemed to always be in captivity under some oppressive nation or some other regime. And at this time, 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel was the judge of Israel. And it's true, Samuel was old. And it's true that his sons did not walk in his ways. In fact, if you were to go back to 1 Samuel 8, which you don't have to, but verse 3, right before the verses I just read to you, they describe Samuel's sons as those who did not walk in, God's, or in Samuel's ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So if the reason Israel always wound up in captivity was because of their own disobedience, and this description of Samuel's sons is accurate and true, which it is, then the prospects after Samuel's death did not look very good for the people of Israel. So they requested a king. And that request is not really out of left field. It's understandable. But they didn't know what they were asking for. They didn't understand that in requesting a king, they were in essence rejecting their current king, namely God himself. 
You know, the history of kingship in Israel, if we were to do a, like a brief biblical theology, a survey of kingship in the Old Testament, we'd have to start in the Garden of Eden, which is, I feel like every single week we go back to the Garden of Eden, because it's in the Garden that many of the truths of God have their foundations there. Not that he began in the Garden of Eden, but he revealed himself to us beginning in the Garden of Eden. But we go back to the garden and we would see that God as creator is equivalent to God as king. That he has the kingly authority over all that he has made. And as he is creating, if you read the language of Genesis chapter 1, he is delegating rule to other authorities. I mean, he creates the sun and the moon. He says the sun and the moon are to rule the day and the night. Genesis 1, 14 through 18. To rule, to reign. He makes Adam and Eve and he delegates to them the authority to have dominion over the earth, to rule. Now, ruling and reigning on earth in this king and queen model is not a result of the fall, but it's actually the original design of creation. We know as the story progresses that the serpent tempts Adam and Eve, and read Genesis chapter 3, to usurp the rule and authority of God over their lives. That instead of being under the governance of a king who delegated to them authority, they desired to be the authority in themselves. To set their own terms on how to rule and to reign. To quote Voltaire, in the beginning God created man in his own image and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Sin now characterizes rule and kingship, not submission to the great king of the universe. Time rolls on, Noah comes along. God gives him almost a recreation mandate, like the one in Genesis chapter 1, where he tells Noah to have dominion over the earth, Genesis chapter 9. But the sinful reality of the human heart takes over, and by Genesis chapter 11, human beings are trying to build a tower to express their greatness. And mankind, as a result, is now spread over all the earth. Nations are created and kings, not one king, but kings in general, rule over those nations. And out of those scattered nations, Genesis chapter 11 into chapter 12, God calls one man, Abram and his family, from the Ur of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon, an idolatrous nation. And he gives him a variety of promises. And in those promises, one of them is that from his lineage, kings would come. Abraham's life was characterized by submission to the great king, God himself, Yahweh God of the Old Testament. And the ultimate purpose of God in blessing Abraham was that his family, which would become the nation of Israel, would continually submit to God as their king and be his representatives on the earth. A few centuries pass, Abraham's family, now comprising probably close to a million people, find themselves in, under the oppression and slavery of a wicked king in Egypt. Unlike most times when Israel finds themselves under the oppression of wicked kings, it's usually their own fault, but this actually is not their own fault. Their slavery served the greater purposes of God, and that he would, that he would deliver them from their oppressive king and reestablish himself as king over them. So you start to see, even here in Exodus, these themes of king and deliverer. King and deliverer. They go hand in hand. To have a king is to have a deliverer. One that frees you from those that oppress you. 
So God, their king, does that. He delivers them from slavery in Egypt. He leads them through Moses to the promised land. They get to the edge of this land. They are to go in and take over these nations that live in that land, drive them out, and inherit that land. But the people fail to do that. Instead, they leave some of the Canaanites in the land, and they prove to be a snare to the people of Israel, cause them to go after other gods. And then enter the period of the Judges. And the common refrain in the book of Judges is there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no common rule. There's no submission to God as king. Everyone was a king or queen unto himself or herself. And the result of this constant oppression under, was, uh, uh, this result was constant oppression under foreign nations. It's a cycle. You read Judges, it's a cycle. People rebel against God. God judges them and puts them under oppression of a foreign nation. They call out to God to deliver them. He raises up a judge. The judge delivers them. They're grateful. But then, sure enough, after some time, they fall back into rebellion against God, into another nation. Please deliver us. Judge Deliverance, thankfulness, sin. It's just this cycle. It goes on and on and on throughout the book of Judges. And Samuel, who we referenced a few minutes ago at the beginning of the sermon, he is the final judge of Israel before the monarchy is established. And to bring it back to where we started, the people of Israel are in constant fear in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the early parts of 1 Samuel, constant fear of being overtaken by the Philistines. And they no longer want judges, they want a king. A king to establish a mighty kingdom to rule and reign in power, to quote, be like the other nations. So not only are they abandoning God, their king, in requesting a king, but they're also desiring to be like the other nations when Israel was meant to be distinct from the other nations. And for the sake of time, we're not going to Recap what a disaster most of the kings were in the Old Testament. Uh, you have a few shining stars like David and Josiah and Hezekiah, but even those good kings had significant flaws, made huge mistakes. Now, granted, God used these kings, even in their shortcomings, to accomplish great ends. You know, Solomon builds the temple and brings peace to Israel. Josiah brought about great spiritual reform in Israel. Hezekiah, through the power of God, thwarts the armies of Assyria, turns them away. But make no mistake, the initial request for a king is an act of great rebellion on behalf of Israel. For as we stated before, they were ultimately rejecting God as their king, turning his back on his rule and reign, and wanting someone for their own purposes to be like the other nations. So when the first century rolls around, and we know I arrived 12 chapters into the Gospel of John, hopes are high in Jesus as this promised kingly Messiah, this delivering king who would come and rescue the people of Israel now living under Roman rule in their land. 
Jesus had changed water to wine. He had demonstrated authority over the natural order. He had healed sick sons and blind men. He had fed, fed multitudes with extremely limited resources. He'd walked on the seas. He'd even raised a dead man back to life. Surely this was the king who would deliver his people from their tormentors and hand the kingdom back over to Israel. The level of expectation entering into John 12 cannot be overstated. These people are ready. They're excited. They are eager. They are hopeful. Yet they're completely misguided in the type of kingdom Christ was about to usher in. They were right to a certain extent. There was, Jesus was most certainly the messianic delivering king. But their desires, their motives for wanting this king came up short. Jesus, the Sunday before the cross on Friday, rides into Jerusalem in a way nobody is expecting, yet communicates through his entrance exactly the type of kingdom he's about to establish on the earth. So I want us to walk through this text, these short verses, seven verses here over the next few minutes, and I want us to see two categories in contrast, two categories we're going to look at. The desires of the crowds against the people of the kingdom. The desires of the crowds against the people of the kingdom. Now granted, we're still in a sermon series called Signs Speak. If you're new, we've been in a sermon series called Signs Speak for the last seven weeks. This is week eight. This is not a, a sign typical like we've looked at the last seven weeks. It's not a miraculous sign, but it's definitely a signpost for the way we are to be as kingdom people here at Emmanuel Church. So let's walk through this text and let's just... In our hearts, just pray that God reminds us of who we are as people of God in this community. So let's begin here again in verse 12. Verse 12, John chapter 12. The next day, so the following day, after Mary anoints Jesus' feet with her hair, which is the story right before this one, we're now five days before the cross. So the next day, Sunday, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the feast being the Passover feast here, the feastgoers had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, in verse 13, they, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So let's pause right there for just a second and make a couple of initial observations here. The biggest observation in these first two verses regarding the crowds versus kingdom people are the crowds desired national deliverance, People of the kingdom desire spiritual deliverance. The crowds desire national deliverance. People of the kingdom desire spiritual deliverance. This is obviously the final Passover Jesus would attend before he leaves the earth. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian around the first century, he actually records the number of people that came to a Passover close to eighty sixty six. And he says the number, not including those, quote, defiled, were about 2.7 million Jews in Jerusalem around AD 66. So rewind about 30 to 35 years. You can just expect and assume there were multitudes and multitudes of people that had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he's probably being met on the road by attenders of this Passover as he makes his way into the city. And the people shout aloud, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Let's break down that statement just a little bit. Uh, The phrase is taken almost directly from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Psalm 118 was one of the six Hallel Psalms. We actually talked about this. I was looking back. My very first, like, come to preach a view of a call Sunday when I was trying out for you, um, I, pre- I talked about the Hallel Psalms. So if you want some background on those, go back and listen to that. Uh, but these psalms will be sung each morning by the temple choir during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is not the feast we're at now. But they were very familiar psalms to people regarding and around feasts. And the crowd shout, Hosanna, which literally means, Hosanna literally means give salvation now. Give salvation now. And while they are shouting this, they're waving palm branches, hence the name of today is Palm Sunday. But palm branches already had close ties in Israel around this time from previous instances of of national victories for Israel. Like the rededication of the temple in 164 B.C. Palm branches were waved as that temple was rededicated. It would be like waving an American flag at a V-Day parade, this symbol of great victory, right? People waving the flag. That's what palm branches symbolized in Israel around this time. It was a national, nationalistic symbol that symbolized victory. So there's a lot of national pride happening right here in John chapter 12 as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. It's very much a moment of, of victory in the eyes of the people of Israel. Here comes the king. Here comes the deliverer to grant salvation for, our, for us against our oppressors. Another indicator that the people desired a political savior king is the use of the title king of Israel. If you were to go back in the Old Testament, look at that title, king of Israel. It had great military undertones. Well, actually, why don't we go back? Go back to Psalm 118. Go back to Psalm 118 in your Bibles. Put your finger in John chapter 12. Flip back to uh, the left, the Old Testament, Psalm 118. And I want us to keep in mind, we're going to read some verses out of Psalm 118. Just keep in mind in John 12, the nationalistic fervor that's happening, right, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And I want us to read some verses that would fuel from Psalm 118, that nationalistic fervor. So look at verses 5 through 7. Psalm 118, verses 5 through 7. The psalmist writes, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph over those who hate me. Now those verses, along with a few others in Psalm 118, could be taken to trump up these triumphalistic military tones. It's victorious tones that John 12, the crowds in John 12 are holding on to. Sounds very much like describing a a military type king, right? I mean, that last verse, I shall look in triumph over those who hate me. But if we're to read the entirety of Psalm 118, which we're not going to, but if we were, we'd probably recognize a few more verses in Psalm 118 that describe a very different type of Messiah than the one just these verses taken out of context describe. I mean, look at verses 22 to 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That verse may sound familiar to you. If you've read any of the New Testament, Jesus quotes it in Luke chapter 20 to describe himself. Peter quotes it in Acts 4 and 1 Peter 2 to describe Jesus. 
Verses that don't really speak of a military victorious Messiah, but a Messiah that would be rejected and despised. And yet, a Messiah that would build everything upon himself as the cornerstone. The crowds chant the parts of the psalm they want to believe. The parts they desire in their heart of hearts. Their nationalistic zeal is strong and their hatred for their enemies is great. You know, it's interesting that in quoting Psalm 118, they actually don't quote the verse right after verse 26, which is what they quote in John 12. They don't don't quote verse 27. Verse 27 says, The Lord is God and He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up up to the horns of the altar. Jesus Christ is coming into Jerusalem to be the final festal sacrifice bound to the altar of the cross, riding into the city, and they miss it. They don't see him for what he's doing because they desired the wrong thing, desired the wrong type of kingdom, the wrong type of king, which we can do as well. You know, in the circles I've been in during my ministry days, uh, some of those circles, I've crossed paths with many men and women who have confused kingdom building with nation building. Their language is desiring revival in America. We need to pray for revival in America, and we should. Those are, that's a good thing, right? We should bring about, we should pray that God brings about great spiritual awakening in our country. But in their heart of hearts, if I were to press them hard enough, in their heart of hearts, they solely desired America conjured up in their own imaginations not one that is rooted in revival. They don't understand the cost to the people of God in any revival that's ever taken place in the history of humanity. That revival's taking place today around the world. We want revival in our country. The revival's taking place in other countries in the world, places like Cuba and North Africa and East Asia. Those revivals are coming at the cost of the lives of those people praying them. Are we seeking to build a nationalistic kingdom like the crowds? Or are we truly seeking a spiritual kingdom full of transformed people? They're two different things. What Jesus was ushering in was not a national deliverance from the tyranny of physical oppressors. I mean, name your oppressor in our world today. That's not the kingdom Christ came to usher in. But he's coming in to usher something much more eternal, something much more lasting, something much greater than our small minds can comprehend. But when the king doesn't deliver the kingdom you or I are expecting, what's our response? Will it be to repent and ask the Holy Spirit to bring our desires into alignment with his? Or will we join these same crowds in John 12 a few chapters later when they don't have their desires fulfilled, shouting, crucify him? Jesus came to deliver us spiritually from bondage to sin and death and advance an eternal kingdom. So may our desires and hopes as a church, and as individuals, be for a kingdom that outlasts all earthly kingdoms. That's the first thing. So the second thing we learn about Jesus' triumphal entry. The crowd desired power. People of the kingdom desire peace. The crowd desired power. People of the kingdom desire peace. 
Eugene Peterson, love Eugene Peterson, said the ways society measures success differ from the ways in which Jesus leads us. Our society and culture is all about power. Power to be yourself, power to create, power to move up the corporate ladder, power to influence, power. And the ironic thing about power is you can never have enough power. You're always desiring more. Power is intoxicating. You have authority and are able to will something. That is like a drug. And you always need more. The way of the world is the strong survive and the weak die. So be strong and use your strength and your power to promote your purposes and your person. The crowd desired power over their oppressors. Now we can sit here and go, well, if I were in that position, I wouldn't make those same decisions. But let's not be too quick on that. The corruption of the human heart, if we were to look at history, the corruption of the human heart would show that apart from the Lord changing us, we will become like them. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus makes it very clear that he is not coming to dominate in power. But he is rather coming to usher in peace. Let's read it again, verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus is doing a variety of things here and sitting on this donkey. All right? one, one thing is he is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Genesis 49, Zechariah chapter 9, both speak of the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He doesn't ride in, as Buster prayed earlier, he doesn't ride in on a great war horse, but a humble donkey. And this is the kind of king Jesus would prove himself to be. He was the humble servant king of peace. Not coming at this point in salvation history, wielding a sword, that's coming later when he comes back, but wielding grace and peace for anyone who would trust him for salvation. And the crowds should have known this. Or the leaders, at least, should have known this. In their understanding of Zechariah 9, I mentioned Zechariah 9 being one of these texts that Jesus is fulfilling here. Zechariah 9, when they, when they see this Messiah riding in on a donkey, they shouldn't, these crowds should, should have realized all that Zechariah 9 said about this king. I want to read part of it. I've got it up here on the screen for you. Zechariah 9 beginning in verse 9. We're going to read a few verses here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. I love that. O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. In looking at Zechariah 9, Jesus came to bring peace and set prisoners free from the waterless pit, namely death itself, and turn them into prisoners of hope. What a great thing to be a prisoner of. 
hope. So Jesus riding in on a donkey as he is coming as this king pictured in Zechariah chapter 9, this Messiah. That's the first thing. Second, Jesus riding on a donkey, as we said before, he's not coming to declare war on physical enemies. But he's coming in to usher peace with God through his crucifixion on the cross and as a result of that peace with one another. In the church, peace should reign. The redeemed church of Christ is not is, the redeemed church of Christ is the only place that deep cultural, geopolitical, racial, I mean name the strife, it's the only place that those wars can cease. There should not be strife and divisions among the people of God because we are a people of peace. We don't gossip, we don't backbite, we don't tear down, we build up because we are a people of peace. We may disagree on some things, but we disagree with the intent of understanding one another in peace. Not stirring up further division. There is no room for divisiveness and division in the body of Christ. None. Because we're a people of peace. Because our king is a king of peace. One of the commentators I read said it like this. He said, Jesus is a king from a unique order. And no confederacy of the powers of evil, whether Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Annas, Pilate, Rome, Judas, and the prince of this world can wrest that authority from him. And I love this. He says he moves majestically forward in procession to his throne, a throne constructed by his enemies, the throne of the cross. Jesus is going to sit down on his throne, a throne of rugged wood. And at this point, that tree, that wood that he would die upon would grant us peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. He's a king of peace. You know, I find it interesting as well that John changes. I don't know if you noticed this when we read Zechariah 9, but John changes actually a little of the wording from the text in Zechariah 9 here in John 12. Zechariah 9, we can have a conversation about that later, but Zechariah 9 says, rejoice greatly, right? John says here, fear not. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Because the peace that Christ brings drives out fear. If there's anything we've learned from this sermon series, if you've taken away anything from the sermon series, that this triumphal entry just puts an exclamation point on. It's that we as the people of God in the kingdom of God, redeemed by Christ, filled with His Spirit, we have no reason to fear. The Christ is sovereign over nature, disease, disability, material possessions, provision, even death itself. He is the king, and we are his people. And there is no reason with that kind of king to have any fear. We have peace, not fear, church. Peace. So king of people desire spiritual deliverance. They desire to be a people of peace. And then third, the crowd exalts self. People of the kingdom exude sacrifice. The crowd exalts self. People of the kingdom exude sacrifice. Verses 16 to 18. Let's read those again. John chapter 12. Jesus' disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness 
The reason why the crowd went to meet him was, again, was that they heard he had done this sign. We're not going to spend too much time here because we've talked about the nature of signs up to this point numerous times over the last seven weeks. But John wants us to continue to stay skeptical around those who seek signs for proof. You have two groups of people here in these three verses. The first group are the, those who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, which we talked about last week. You can go back and listen to it. And they're continuing to bear witness to the truth of Christ. That's the first group. Second group are those solely there because they heard about the resurrection sign. And they're there. Now, this could be mere curiosity. It's definitely possible. They could be curious who this Jesus guy is, what he's going to do. But John's already told us in numerous places up to this point in John chapter 12 that most of the time when crowds show up, they want something. That they want Jesus to act like a genie that just grants them a bunch of wishes for their own sake. And John would go on even in verse 37 of this same chapter of John chapter 12, and he would say that even though many signs were done, people still didn't believe in Jesus. So signs, again, reiterating, signs are not always sufficient to grant faith. Self here in these, this text, John chapter 12, still seems to be at the center of many who are around Jesus here. What can you do for me, Jesus? But our approach, church, should never be, what can you do for me? Gimme, 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 what can you do for me? But our church, our church, our approach, church, is what can you do in me? It's recognizing that through highs and lows, through plans and through interruptions, through spectacular things in our lives and through the mundane day-to-day events, that God is always working, that he's always working in you and through you for his glory. He doesn't waste anything in our lives, church. He's always doing something in your heart, and our desire should be do more in me than for me. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the back of this donkey, he's demonstrating to us what sacrifice looks like, right? He had every right to ride in on a war horse. He had every right to usher in angel armies to throw Rome out, to destroy Rome and set up an earthly kingdom for Israel. He had every right to assume a throne, a literal throne in that moment. But he knew that five days from now, these same people seeking signs, shouting Hosanna, are going to be calling for his execution. He's carrying out the most selfless act in all of history and putting on display the selflessness that we are to emulate towards one another. We don't come to Christ to get something from him. We come to Christ to die to die to ourselves and find life in Him. Our lives should not be marked by self, but by selflessness and sacrifice. Laying down our lives for the good of one another is not easy. I mean, I struggle with it with my own wife, and I love her way more than I love y'all. It's hard. It takes the Spirit of God in us, working in us, to produce in us the desire to die daily. But if our heavenly king can do it for a bunch of God-hating rebels, which is what we were, then we can surely do it for one another. May God bestow grace upon us to those ends. We're going to talk more about that in the next sermon series, so I'll stop there. I'll stop there. So number three, number four, last thing. Last thing here. The triumphal entry is meant to teach us 
that the crowd sought an exclusive kingdom, but the people of the kingdom seek an inclusive kingdom. The crowd seeks exclusion. People of the kingdom seek inclusion. Verse 19, the response of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Is that a little facetious? Yeah, sure, the whole world was not going after Christ. A lot of people were. But was this the intention of Christ, to draw the world? Yeah, it was. Now, I'm not using the word inclusive here like our culture uses inclusive to mean that, you know, everybody gets in. We're not universalists here. We don't believe that everybody gets into heaven regardless of what they do with Christ or sin or repentance or any of those things. It's not what we're saying here. The Bible doesn't teach that. We don't believe that. But the Jewish crowds here wanted an exclusive kingdom for Israel where they dominate those who hate them. Where Israel is the main world power and everyone else can just die. The kingdom of Christ is inclusive in the sense that the gospel offer is intended to be extended to every single person on this planet. We hold out the hope of Christ to even the most vile, worthless, corrupt individuals on this planet and pray for the Spirit of God to open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. I mean, it was extended to us, right? And if we're still comparing our own morality to other people's and going, man, we're way better than them, we have not really understood the gospel. We pray with all our energy and our might that the whole world would go after Christ. Jesus is ushering in a kingdom where he is breaking down in his body on the cross the wall of hostility that exists between Jew and Gentile, Ephesians chapter 2. This is what the destination is for the king of peace. It's a rugged, bloody cross of wood held upon it with three nails. His arms wide in sacrifice, but his arms also wide in great invitation to anyone that would come. By God's grace, we have looked to Christ for our salvation. It's all his grace in us. There's nothing in us that drew our eyes to Christ. It was all his working in us to look up towards him for salvation. And we extend this same invitation to the uttermost parts of the earth. May we not demand a new king to be like the other nations after our own desires. But may we submit to and follow Jesus, our king, for the sake of the nations. May God draw the nations to himself through Emmanuel Church through God's people, not just here but abroad. May God draw the nations to himself as we lift up Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this week, I pray for all of us. What a great, amazing opportunity this holy week to extend the gospel to those in our spheres and ultimately to the nations. So let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. And then we'll respond. Father, you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and you've transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We are qualitatively new people. A people you've redeemed by your very Son's blood. 
May you give us the power to act like kingdom people. May Emmanuel Church be a place of Christ-centered sacrifice, Christ-centered love, Christ-centered peace. When strife and striving, they begin to rear their ugly heads, may we seek peace. May we not leave anything unaddressed. May we not let any sin fester, any root of bitterness take hold in our hearts, but may we always be pursuing peace, for we are peacemakers. For Christ Himself was a peacemaker who came to establish peace here on earth between us and God by His blood, but also us and one another. And I pray, Father, this Holy Week that You remind us, even as we trek towards Good Friday and trek towards Resurrection Sunday, may we be reminded of the lengths and the depths of your love that you went to bring us back to you, to grant us that peace. It was not without cost. It was not, this is not cheap grace. This was very costly grace, for it cost you the life of your very son. We love you, Lord. And we thank you so much for one another and for the grace you bestowed in each one of us through the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're about to respond now. Bye. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.